please turn with me in God's holy word to the Gospel of John. Then I will lead us in prayer. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray this night that even as we have lifted up our voices in praise to you, even as we have had the blessings of you, our God, pronounced upon us, even as we have attended to you, joining with one another in praise and song to you, in recitation of what we believe, we pray now, Father, that your spirit would work through your word in our hearts and minds to build us up in our faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That just as we were called to meet you at the beginning of this service, we would know from your word that we have been met. That you have spoken. You have touched our hearts. You have touched our minds. You have touched our lives. And you are working in us by the power of your spirit through the word. We pray for this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with to me to John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. John 3, 43 through 54. Let us hear God's holy word. And this is a passage, I'll set it up. It's a passage that follows, that follows the uh, very familiar story of Jesus meeting with the Samaritan woman. And that wonderful verse, verse 42 where the Samaritans declared Jesus to be the Savior of the world. Here we hear God's word. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. In this gospel, John shows us that there are different kinds of faith and there are different degrees of faith. That is what makes this passage particularly important to you and me. We all have friends and relatives whose faith we wonder about. They say that they believe, but honestly, we don't know what that means to them. They say, um, they may declare that they believe in God, they believe in Jesus, but we just don't know. 
Because we love them and we care about them, we hope that it means to them the same thing that it means to us. But while some people leave us in no doubt, there are others about whom we are never quite sure. In the Gospel of John, on the one hand, there are those who are said to believe not once, but several times. Their faith, which is profound at its beginning, seems to grow as it is confirmed by what the believer sees and as the believer grows in understanding. The disciples, for example, are an example of this. In chapter 1, they confess their faith in Jesus. Look at verses 8. I'm not telling you to turn there. I'm saying look at it sometime. John 1, 19 through 52. Do you realize he is called, Jesus is called before his first miracle, before the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus is declared to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is called the Son of God not once but twice. He is called the Messiah, the Christ, and he is called the King. That means the eternal King to sit on David's throne forever. forever. And that's before a single miracle. We don't even read that his teaching ministry has begun. But these are men whose faith is founded on the word of God. And when they meet Jesus, they are convinced that this is the fulfillment that all was that was promised in Moses and the prophets, that he is the one they have been looking for. But even with such profound faith as that, when they see Jesus turn the water into wine, we read in chapter two, verse 11, that they believed. Now, does that mean that they believed profoundly, lost their faith, and then believed again? No, it means that they grew in their faith. And therefore, again, after Jesus casts sellers out of the temple, we are told that after the resurrection, the disciples will remember what Jesus said, they'll remember what he did. And we're told in chapter 2, verse 22, very interesting verse, it says, they believed the scriptures and Jesus' words. Does that mean they lost faith and they gained it? No, they grew. They grew in their faith all along. Based on God's word, they believed what we believe about Jesus, that he is the son of God, that he is the Christ, the eternal king. The signs they saw confirmed their faith and made it grow. It isn't that they believed and lost their faith and gained it, as I've already just said. Their faith grew and grew. On the other hand, there are others who are said to believe, but whose faith is nothing like the faith of the disciples. In chapter 2, verse 23, we are told that many believed when they saw the signs that Jesus was doing. This was after he had come up to Jerusalem for that Passover. We're only told about his casting out of the buyers and sellers, but there's the implication that other signs had been performed. And we're told that they believed. But we don't know what that faith means until we get to verse 24. And when we get to 24, we find out that we're told that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. And then in the Greek, we find out that when we get to chapter 3, verse 1, that Nicodemus becomes an example of the kind of people that are described in chapter 2, verse 24. People who are said to believe that Jesus is sent from God because no one could perform the miracles he does unless it was from God. 
but they don't believe the same thing that the disciples believe. Nicodemus becomes an example at this point of the kind of man to whom Jesus does not entrust himself. He doesn't give himself to them because he knows what's in their hearts. Nicodemus, as I said, was certainly among these people, but Jesus tells him that he will not see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Jesus tells him he will not enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Nicodemus' faith, which rests on Jesus' signs, falls short. Certainly he knows the scriptures, but he does not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, the eternal King, promised by the word of God. And therefore, according to chapter 3, verse 11, Jesus says to him, you do not receive our testimony. So here in chapter 1 through 3 are two sorts of people who have very different kinds of faith. Both kinds of people are said to believe, but only one kind of faith rests on God's word and believes that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God has promised. While that kind of faith grows, the other kind of faith is not a saving faith. It rests on signs, not God's word. Again, this isn't describing the difference between strong faith and weak faith. We don't, don't let us get confused. One faith believes that Jesus is who God's word says he is. The other faith only believes that Jesus does great things. This gospel, therefore, shows us that not everyone has the kind of faith that we call saving faith. Not everyone is said to believe is born again. John the Baptist, the disciples, even the woman at the well, and the Pete Samaritans of Sychar can all be said by this point in the Gospel of John to have saving faith. Those who witnessed Jesus' signs during the Passover in Jerusalem and Nicodemus can be said to have the other sort of faith, which is based on miracles and is sometimes called miracle faith. While Jesus knew the difference between saving faith and the other sort of faith because he knew what is in each man's heart, the church since Jesus' ascension has struggled. Struggled to discern what sort of faith a person has. With intellectual knowledge, people can learn to give the right answers and even the right nuances to those answers. And therefore, in order to get beyond just the right words, the church looks for what is called a credible profession of faith. Does the person's life evidence what they claim their faith, the, claim, the faith that they claim to have? But even with this, it's difficult for the church. It has always been difficult. How does one tell the difference between an unbelieving Pharisee whose life and words are in very good order and a true believer whose life and words are in disorder? In the Apostles' Day, imagine the problem. On the one hand, there are the Israelite believers who have known the Word of God and lived the Word of God all of their life. Then in contrast, there are the Gentile believers who've just been worshiping Artemis. They've just been worshiping Jupiter. They've just been worshiping Juno. What do they know? They've just been at Ephesus where you literally gave two 
years of your life into temple prostitution to show your devotion to her. That's the kind of life they've been saved from. What, how much do they know? For them, the rules of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 of abstaining from sexual immorality, not eating blood or eating food sacrificed to idol seems like a really low bar in light of all the other culturally common sins that might be in a young believer's life, like lying, stealing, domestic violence. How then can one tell the difference between a better-behaved Gentile and a true believer? You see, this isn't just a New Testament problem. This is a foreign missions problem. This is a Gainesville problem. This is sometimes our problem with inter- when interacting with our own friends and family. Sometimes true faith has mistakenly been measured by abstinence from smoking, drinking, abstinence from card playing, dancing, movie attendance, even owning a television. And even in the Korean Pentecost, having unconverted members in your immediate family. If you had an unconverted member in your immediate family, you obviously are not serious enough about your Christian faith and you have to wait another year before you can join the church. 1907. And if you think that the church should just admit anyone who claims faith, consider the testimony of two pastors that I asked for once. I was in the Dominican Republic on a short-term missions trip with another minister in the OPC. And we were visiting a missionary who couldn't speak Spanish, still learning it, and had hired two pastors to pastor the two churches that had been planted. So I said, I want to hear these guys' testimony. So we brought them individually in so that I could interview them. The first one, I asked him, why did he become a minister? And he told me, because I went to a tarot card reader, and the tarot card reader told me I should become a pastor. The second guy comes in, and starts to tell me about how he had once lived a former abusive, drunken life, and he now sees that there's this change in his life, and now he lives differently. The faith of both men rested on the signs of what they believed to be the work of God in their life. For one, that sign from God was the cards drawn by a tarot card reader. For the other, his faith rested in the changes in how he lived. Neither man spoke of God's word. Neither man spoke of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And oh, did I forget to emphasize they were both pastors. While John in this gospel has up until these verses described two very different sorts of faith. In these last verses of chapter 4, he seems to attribute one kind of faith to a man at the beginning of the story and another kind of faith to the man at the end of the story. And that's why this passage is so important to us. Because we wonder, can a person move from one category to the other? From only having miracle faith to having saving faith.
This man seems to go from the one sort of faith that believes that Jesus can perform wonders to believing that Jesus is the giver of life. And it is this latter faith that the Apostle John wants us to have. That's the very reason why he wrote this gospel, according to John 20, verses 30 through 31. He wrote this so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing, have life in Jesus' name. While John testifies to the signs performed by Jesus, he wants all of us to believe because of what is written here in the Word of God. This gospel, therefore, is an answer to the question, what should we believe about Jesus? Is he only a messenger sent by God? Is he only a prophet? Or is he something more? Is it satisfactory to believe that he is one thing? Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He is the eternal King. He is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God who proves the greatness of God's love as it's described in John 3, 16 through 17. Jesus is the Savior of the world as was declared by the Samaritans at Sychar in John 4, 42. He is the giver of life. In John 4, 43 through 54, I would like us to see faith that rests on signs and faith that rests on Jesus' word. John 3 ends and John 4 begins with Jesus baptizing and making more disciples than John the Baptist. Because of the unwanted attention that Jesus is getting from the Pharisees, Jesus leaves Judea and moves toward Galilee. The shortest path leads him straight through Samaria, where where he interacts with a Samaritan woman and two days with the villagers who lived in Sychar, Samaritans. And that interaction results in them declaring that he is the savior of the world. Just as Jesus pushed the Samaritan woman beyond herself to believe that he is the Christ, the Savior of the world, the prophet mediator greater than Moses, here Jesus will push this man beyond his desire for a miracle for his son. Here this man and his family will come to believe that Jesus is the giver of life. He is the giver of life. Faith that rests on signs, 43 through 49. The Samaritans had asked Jesus to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. Afterward, he continued to travel into Galilee. Many, including the early church fathers, have suggested they think that verses 44 doesn't belong in this passage because they think it's contradicted by 45. But nothing could be further from the truth. Verse 44 tells us the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is that the Galileans will not believe the right thing about Jesus. They all seem to be people who have miracle faith in Jesus. And so they're glad. Yes, verse 45 fits in with verse 44. Because they want him to come. They're excited to see his miracles. They want to hear it and they want to see it. Do hear what you did in Jerusalem, they say. 
Jesus' words concerning a prophet having no honor in his hometown are recorded in all four Gospels. However, in the other Gospels, Jesus' words are recorded in connection with unbelief and criticism of those who know Jesus' family. In other words, he's one of us. Who does he think he is? Here, John uses Jesus' words said on that occasion as a reason for why Jesus is going to Galilee. It is, is, it is as if there is a necessity for Jesus to go from Judea, where he was baptizing and making so many disciples that he was getting unwanted attention, to Galilee, where he was gladly welcomed, but only on account of the things that they had saw him do in Jerusalem. He's leaving a ministry where people were actually coming to saving faith. To go to a place that's glad to see him, but only because of miracles. And that's the problem in missions too, isn't it? Where people are glad for the missionary to come. It may mean money. Here in his hometown region, they might come for the miracles, but they are not coming to hear the word of God. They are not coming to have their life changed. They are not coming to follow him. It seems strange, doesn't it, that he would leave the place where he was becoming popular to go to the place where he would not be honored for who he really is. But look at it this way. He had to come to Galilee because they needed to be pushed too. They needed to be pushed to believe more about him than what they knew about him from his growing up in, with his family. They needed to believe and receive eternal life. They needed to br- he needed to bring the gospel to the people least likely to believe his family, his hometown people, just like you and I need to do. But they remember what I was like in high school. They remember what I was like in junior high. They remember the stupid things that I did after college. They need to hear the gospel. While Galilee will have be a haven from religious opposition, it is not going to be a haven from unbelief. Jesus' popularity here is going to be based on their desire to see signs, not because the Galileans believe that he is the Son of God, the Christ, and the eternal King of Israel. They want him not because of a hope that he will change the world, but only because they hope that he will change some circumstance of their life in this present world, a healing or a deliverance from demons. They want him not because they want to follow and serve him, but because they want to see him do something for them. As Jesus passed through Galilee, he once more arrived in the little town of Cana where he earlier attended a wedding and turned water into wine. On his previous visit to Cana, it was his mother who asked him to do something about a newly married couple's need for more wine. On this visit, a man travels from Capernaum to speak to Jesus, not because he wants to see God. In fact, we're going to be left wondering at a certain point, 
Would this man have even come to Cana to see Jesus if it weren't for his son? He hasn't come because he wants to see God. He has come because he wants to ask Jesus to come to his home to heal his dying son. The word used here to describe the man indicates that he belongs to the king. It's a very strange word, but what it means is that he is either a member of the royal family or he is a servant of the king. Like the other residents of Galilee, that would be King Herod, by the way. Like the other residents of Galilee, he probably knows what Jesus did in Jerusalem and believes that Jesus is able to heal his son. This man is like those described at the end of chapter 2. He believes in Jesus on account of the signs he did. Therefore, he believes that Jesus can heal his dying son. But that is the only thing that's driving him. He was desperate. He was desperate. It's proved by a couple of things. No, we're not exactly sure of the distance because no one's exactly sure of where Cana was. It doesn't exist. It didn't exist for very long after the fall of Jerusalem. So we don't know how far it was from Capernaum to Cana, but it is estimated that it was approximately 25 miles. And so he makes, that would be a 50-mile round trip in a day without cars. Best you might be is on a donkey or something, but probably walking. He makes a 50-mile round trip, which would have taken several days, the fastest he could have possibly done it in, and that would have really been pushing it. Would have been maybe three days. But the other thing that proves how desperate he is is the fact that he leaves his son to make this journey. His dying son, who he might not be able to get back to in time. However, for all the sympathy that we might have for him, and having had a daughter for whom there was no more hope, I do have a lot of sympathy for him. There is probably nothing that could have prepared him for Jesus' response. Jesus responds not by using a singular you as if he's only speaking to this man. He uses a plural you saying, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. In other words, Jesus is saying that this man characterizes and represents the rest of the Galileans. You're just like everybody else. All you want to do is see signs. Jesus' words like those spoken to the Father at the bottom of the Mount of Transfiguration or the Syrophoenician mother sound brutal. They sound as if Jesus has no compassion for the man. And in light of the man's humble response, we feel even worse for him. But Jesus wants for this man far more than the healing of his dying son. He wants to give him more than an extension of life in this world. He wants to give him eternal life to this man and to his family. The man believes that Jesus has power from God to heal, but it is not the faith of John the Baptist or the disciples. It is faith founded on Jesus' reputation, not founded on the word of God. 
He has asked for Jesus to heal his son. His is not an expectation or hope for salvation or the removal of sin. His is not a belief that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, or the King of Israel. It is only a faith that Jesus is able to perform a miracle. And Jesus wants more for him than a miracle. The mention of this man's rank makes us think of the incident with Nicodemus, who also was a leader among his people. And with this reminder... As I said earlier, we're left wondering, would he have even come if it hadn't been for the need of his son? Nicodemus did at night, you remember. But would this man? Certainly he believes that Jesus is able to heal, but is it a saving faith? Is it a faith that lays hold of the hope that Jesus gives me right standing with God right now? Is it the faith that believes that Jesus alone is able to heal my soul? The brilliance of the Holy Spirit, including this passage, is that the church has struggled with the questions about faith of such desperate people since the coming of Christ. And like Jesus, we want more for them than that. People claim faith, but is their faith only about their current circumstance? Or is their faith about resting on Christ as the fulfillment of all the promises of God? Faith that trusts Jesus' words. The Baptists, the disciples, and the Samaritans believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises of God to come to his people as their Savior and King. Here in Galilee, as with this court official, it is Jesus' signs that people believe in, as I've said over and over. And I say it over and over again because it's a reality. It's wishful thinking that a person who is only looking for signs or a change in their life in this world has saving faith. That is why it is so important for Jesus to push this man beyond his description, his desperation, to make him trust not in signs, but in the word of God. And notice how he does it. The court official had come pleading that Jesus come with him to heal his dying son. Instead, Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. And this is the real test. And that's the question of the moment. Will he believe Jesus' words without seeing a sign? Will he put his trust and confidence in the promise of Christ without seeing a sign? And there's the answer to the question. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He is leaving with a far different faith than he came with. The man had come to Jesus with one sort of faith and now had another. He now had a faith that rested on the promise of God. 
Like the disciples whose faith in Jesus was confirmed by the sign of water changed into wine, this man too would find confirmation when his servants met him along the road and told him the time when his son began to get better. But that was only confirmation. His faith was growing. And so we are told once again that he believed now with his whole household. Commentators have written about the many similarities between the first miracle in Galilee and the second, but there is also a stark contrast. In the first, the disciples had true faith before the miracle. They already believed who Jesus is. The miracle strengthened and made that faith grow. In the second, the court official is at first linked with all those who make faith dependent on a sign. And then he becomes a man whose faith rests on the word of Jesus, only to be confirmed and to grow with confirmation of the healing. While we at first wondered what sort of faith he had, or even if he would have come to hear Jesus apart from his need, in the end we are left in no doubt where he's at. He has responded in faith to Jesus' word. He headed home believing. While there may be needs in your life, you need to have the faith that trusts in the words and promises of God. Not a faith that waits on the fulfillment of some change, some miracle that you're looking for. Words and promises that call you to believe that Jesus is your God, your Savior, your King. He tells you that he died for your sins in your place. Do you believe him? He says that he will give you eternal life. Do you believe him? We encourage people to come to Jesus to be forgiven, to receive peace, to find comfort. And those are surely good things. But shouldn't people want to come to Jesus because he is Jesus? Because he is God, Savior and King? The first disciples came to Jesus because they were looking for the one whom God promised to send. The servant of the Lord. God's Messiah, the eternal king, the prophet and mediator greater than Moses. They came to Jesus because they believed that he is the one whom God promised. Others will come to Jesus for all sorts of reasons and on account of all sorts of needs. The Samaritan woman went to the well to get a bucket of water and found the gift of God, the promised Messiah, the giver of living water. This court official went to Jesus to get life for his dying son and found eternal life for his entire family. Whatever you are looking for in Jesus, you can be sure of finding more than you can ask for or imagine. Determining who is a true believer and who may not be has always been hard on Judgment Day. The goats will think that they should be included and Jesus will say, I never knew you. The sheep will believe that they should not be included and Jesus will welcome them into his kingdom. The gospel of John helps us to see that it is always difficult to tell which is which because tares and wheat look a lot alike until the harvest. 
Those with true faith will grow in their faith and those whose faith seems to be more about what they will get out of it will often leave us wondering. And what should we and what should give us overwhelming comfort is that it is possible that God will change one sort of faith into another. Miracle faith into saving faith. It was difficult then and it is difficult now. We hope that the faith that a person has is the faith that has been given to them as a gift of God. But our only measure now, as it was for the apostles, the words that a man, woman, or child confesses and the behavior that is consistent with their confession. Yet even in this, we look not for the evidence of their efforts, but the evidence of the work that has been done in them by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And it is hard, so hard, to look for that which is spiritual by using that which is natural. For us, as for the apostolic church, the wheat and the tares look identical. And we will only know the difference in the great harvest of Christ's return. Until then, we must encourage one another. Not toward a faith in signs. Hope for a healing. A hope for a changed and transformed life. But we must encourage one another to a faith that rests solely on the word and promises of Christ. And so I encourage you to believe not because of what you have seen, but because of what God's word tells you about who Jesus is and what he has done to give you eternal life. Jesus wants you to believe in him. Not for the things you might get, but because you want Him, your God, your Savior, your King, forever. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise You for Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. We thank You for Him who alone is able to make the dead live. We thank You for Him who raised us from the dead by his power and gave us new life. Dear Father, we pray for those whom we love so dearly. We don't know what's in their hearts. And our doubts are only because of what appears to us in our natural eyes. We pray, Father, that by your grace that you would not only encourage us to encourage them to look to Christ, to hope in Christ, to listen to what Jesus says, what he tells them, and to put their trust in his word. We pray that you would encourage us to know that our work is that that work which you have called us to, that work which you work in us to do, is to pray for others, to point them to the hope that is found alone in the word of God. And that it is your work, through the power of your spirit, through your word, to raise the dead, 
to heal souls and to strengthen those who are weak. We pray, Father, that Jesus Christ would be glorified with our words and that we would be given many, many occasions to praise you as those whom we love. Join us in their thanksgiving and praise to Jesus for all that he has done for them and in them. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.